0: Welcome to the American Meteorological Society's podcast series, Clear Skies Ahead, conversations about careers in meteorology and beyond. I'm Kelly Savoy, and I'm here with Rex Horner, and we'll be your hosts. We're excited to give you the opportunity to step into the shoes of an expert working in weather, water, and climate sciences.
1: We're happy to introduce today's guest, Tom Kilpatrick, who is an oceanographer at the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, the B-O-E-M, within the U.S. Department of the Interior, located in Sterling, Virginia. Welcome, Tom. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Pleasure to
2: be here. Very excited.
0: Tom, could you tell us a little bit about your educational background and what sparked your interest in oceanography?
2: Yeah, yeah. So I started out as an undergraduate at mit in the like civil and environmental engineering department so even at that age i had some interest in applying science to the environment because then that department they handle they you know study construction and materials but also there's a whole like environmental engineering wing so i worked in a laboratory there at parsons lab as an undergrad so i was interested already like in environmental fluid dynamics for example i ended up switching majors into applied mathematics um after a school trip um, to Hawaii, actually, where I was, for the first time, you know, exposed to a huge surf. It's actually surf and surfing was kind of my, maybe the initial hook that sort of drew me in and wanted me to learn more about the ocean. So that kind of inspired me to work at Woods Hole for another summer internship and then eventually to apply to graduate school at the University of Hawaii in physical oceanography. This is um, kind of where I got the qualifications that sort of enabled my career path after that.
1: Tom, how did you end up at MIT? I know that's a pretty high-profile school. Most people know it. How did you find out about it, and how do you apply and end up going there?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. Well, MIT was my dream school, so I was fortunate enough to have a chance to go there. Basically, just working hard in high school. I had t- taken a couple of classes at the University of Michigan as well when I was still in high school, which you know probably helped me prepare that application package. And also, I think I was a recruited athlete as well. So MIT sports are Division three, so it's not um, you know like what you see on ESPN, but they do have you know, limited recruiting for the different sports teams where the coaches get a little bit of a say in admission. So I think that might have helped as well.
1: What was your sport?
2: Uh, so I played baseball and football. Uh, so I think I was a recruited athlete for baseball, possibly for football, I don't remember exactly. So yeah, for young um, student athletes out there, it's good to reach out to, you know, coaches at the schools you might be interested in.
1: And did you play for all four years of college?
2: I did play football, yeah, for four years, uh, baseball just one year
1: what was it like balancing your sports career with your academic career as far as time management and those different responsibilities and commitments?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. It was really a challenge, uh, especially during the season, um, because, you know, we'd have practice for two hours every day and then, you know, extra time in the training room, icing or rehabilitating injuries. So that was quite a challenge. So by the my third or fourth year, I remember I would try to take a lighter course load in the fall, and then load up more on courses in the spring. So it's definitely an extra challenge. And for like preparing your application for grad school, if you're thinking about going down that road, uh, there's an opportunity cost as well. Sometimes I second guess myself that you know maybe I should have spent um, a bit more time. For example, you know some of that time I was playing sports, which I loved. It was a great experience just for my life. Like there is, I could have used that time for other things, like working in the lab. Um, like you know, take an extra elective class in a in a topic that maybe you have some interest in, but otherwise wouldn't have a chance to kind of explore. So yeah, this is just the kind of choices that you have to make in life.
0: Yeah, because that's a lot of time, two hours a day. Wow, that gets into that study time, doesn't it? You must have been up very late at night doing studying.
2: Yeah, a lot of late nights. Definitely a lot of late nights. Uh, still, when you're you know 19 years old, can pull an all nighter. I don't think I can do that. I can do that anymore.
1: I don't think I could either. Um, what opportunities, Tom, did you pursue while you were in college that helped you to securing a job in your profession of choice, or to propelling you into the next stage of your career after college?
2: Yeah, so I had a couple of internships. Um, so I mentioned the the research internship I had at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. They have this great, long running summer program. It's part of the National Science Foundation the REU or Research Experience for Undergraduate program that's been you know going for decades there. So definitely recommend uh, you know young people undergraduates who are interested in learning about oceanography and um, getting really a hands-on experience with some of the top people in the field uh, to take a look at that also but also on the industry side I had in- internships um, with a construction company in Boston one summer and I worked in Japan as part of the MIT Japan program so that's what like as I mentioned I started out in engineering I thought I wanted to go that route so I had was exploring you know opportunities um, with internships in industry which are also great kind of give you a hands-on experience, up-close view of what life, the day-to-day life is like in that field. I ended up deciding I wanted to go more, at least initially, academic route and try to get a, um, a graduate degree in oceanography after that. So the
1: opportunities, I guess, like traditionally beneficial in the sense of they led directly to a job, but they were very beneficial because they gave you context and lots of experience to help inform your choice of what you wanted to do next. Does that sound like a good characterization?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I would strongly recommend, you know, for undergraduates to pursue those types of internship opportunities. You might have some sense of what you think you want to do from your classes or from, you know, friends that you've that are older than you who've gone on to different career paths. But there's nothing like being there yourself and, you know, working on the actual assignments that the um, professionals in that field have to, you know, really let you <laughs> and then you really know if you like something, you know, when you're sitting there doing it on a day to day basis working with professionals in that field. So those are fantastic. Yeah. When you can do in different fields in industry a lot of opportunities it's almost like a prerequisite i think for some fields now to get job offers is uh, at least people who are who have interned with a company i've heard will be at the front of the line depending on the company but also like you want to go to government and work in policy or uh, certainly if you want to go to graduate school that's almost like a prerequisite i think for the top graduate programs to have like some uh, substantial research experience good to know
0: so speaking of careers, what was your first job in the field and how did you end up at the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management?
2: Yeah, so after I got my PhD in physical oceanography at the University of Hawaii in 2013, and then I, I guess you could uh, say my first job was as a postdoctoral scholar, um, what you call a postdoc position at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego. So I worked there for five years as a postdoc. I wouldn't recommend people working that long as a postdoc, but uh, Scripps is so nice there right in La Jolla. I kind of stretched it out to the max. And then I stayed two more years as a, as a. my title was assistant project scientist. So that's um, sort of a similar flavor where it's, those are not really career positions. When you see someone with a title like postdoc or project scientist or research associate, research scientist, that usually means that you're, it's like a temporary contract position where you're working on a funded um, research grant that usually has a kind of a timescale of maybe three or four years. Um, so I was working on a couple of NASA projects there. Which were great, great experience with in Professor Shengping She's group.
0: And do most people do that while they're pursuing a PhD, or do you do that afterwards?
2: No, the way it works is uh, usually for those kind of tunnels, uh, a PhD is required to be a postdoc, um, or to you know be like a you know research scientist or a product scientist at uh, these research schools in the US or at the national labs have those kind of positions as well. So yeah, you would complete your PhD and then the usual path, if you want to go the academic route, which I had aspirations for a while there to try to become like a tenure track professor or to be a research scientist at some of the national labs like NOAA Lab or Department of Energy, where you're doing you know research as your full-time job. Usually you need a couple of years of postdoctoral experience. So that's, that was kind of the path that I was pursuing there for a while. Tom, what convinced
1: you not to follow the tenure track career path?
2: Yeah, so I tried pretty hard. Uh, it was, I mean, basically, it's highly competitive. So at a certain point, it just became clear that um, I think I had to kind of explore more other opportunities besides just trying to be a tenure track professor. This will, I think, happen at least among you know my friend group. Uh, this is a pretty common issue that people face. You just run into this uh, arithmetic that there are just very few of those kind of career scientist positions or, you know, tender track faculty positions at research schools. So, you um, you know, compared to the number of, uh, of PhDs that are graduating every year and even that are doing productive postdocs where you have, you know, a number of publications, it's still quite competitive. So, yeah, I made a you know, pretty good try of it. Even had, uh, like, you know, was interviewing for faculty jobs as well. But then when the pandemic hit, was looking into all the opportunity as well into industry, and, and I'd be happy to talk a little bit about that. My experience interviewing for different different types of positions, uh, but then yeah, I had this great opportunity arose basically working for this government agency, um, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, or BOEM, where uh, I'm going to be working more as a science, like a project manager or a a program manager type of role, I should say, where I'll be on the other end of the table, basically overseeing their um, science projects that they fund. So it's like pretty cool. I think definitely lines with my interests can use the, you know, what I've learned and still be around science and kind of try to put some of what I've learned to use for a good purpose, which is uh, our main responsibility or jurisdiction is like the Outer Continental Shelf or the OCS of the United States and trying to utilize that for uh, energy in a responsible way.
1: How far does that Outer Continental Shelf extend past the coastline?
2: That's a good question. I think it starts at nine kilometers from shore. So the initial um, coastal region from the you know from the beach out to nine kilometers, or in some states it's out to four kilometers. That's usually state jurisdiction. And then typically beyond that would be federal jurisdiction. Gotcha. So like the most of the Gulf of Mexico, where there are thousands of oil and gas rigs currently, uh, that's all the considered the OCS. That's under BOEMs jurisdiction, or now there's like more of a push towards renewable energy, uh, wind turbines um, specifically. So off the East coast, there are already a number, I think two wind turbines just went live recently in federal waters. There's a couple in state waters off of Rhode Island as well, the Block Island project. Um, But there's going to be, it's looking like more in the future. There's a bunch of uh, leases that have been issued for future uh, wind turbine development in the OCS.
1: Great. So um, I understand you started your new job at BOEM, recently in August, and you'd been at Scripps for seven years, as you said, before that. So clearly you you said you had a lot of affinity and a lot of passion for Scripps and the community there. So can you give us a little bit of insight into what role Scripps played in the atmospheric science community and what made it a unique employer?
2: Yeah, so I really only have great things to say about Scripps. It's, uh, I think, really a special place with a terrific research environment, kind of collegial environment with just um, really talented faculty, lots of, you know, amazingly talented uh, researchers and postdocs and grad students as well. But just a very positive environment where people try to support each other. I didn't really sense any of the kind of toxic environment that you can develop at schools, unfortunately, sometimes. Um, Their heart and soul is really more in oceanography than in atmospheric science, I think. Maybe some of the atmospheric science people might object to me saying that, but their legacy goes back to their origins, I think, were as a naval research laboratory. It actually predates the main UC San Diego campus with which it's now affiliated. Uh, but they still have, you know, I think a, a solid um, group of atmospheric science professors, especially like in uh, cloud physics and like aerosols. They've had, you know, some great people working on that kind of stuff for decades now as well. But they've been expanding more into climate science recently. Uh, so yeah, as we move forward to the future, kind of studying oceanography as you know one component of the integrated earth system, I think Scripps is, you know, has already made great contributions, but is poised to, you know, continue to kind of be a leading research institution due to the location and just the great personnel they have there and just the kind of positive culture, I think, that they've been able to uh, cultivate over time.
1: What is La Jolla like as a, as a place to live and to work in?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's really beautiful. Like, for those of you, the listeners who haven't um, visited San Diego or, or seen, like, Scripps is literally on the beach. I, I don't know if anywhere else other oceanographic institutions, even maybe Woods Hole would be uh, the closest where like the buildings are literally on the beach. Um, or even if you're just a little bit up the road, the grad students, you know, they keep their surfboards and their wetsuits in their office and just, you know, walk down for walk down for a surf session before the class. It's yeah, kind of amazing thing to, to see. Just uh, once you get used to it, sometimes you still have to just sort of kind of appreciate, take a step back and appreciate what you get to experience there on a day-to-day basis.
0: So the transition for you, this is going to be uh, quite a transition from the West Coast to the East Coast, and also interviewing during a pandemic. Could you tell us a little bit about how that worked for you?
2: Yeah. <laughs> so it was yeah definitely it's just been crazy. Uh, so I started like applying for jobs more for a career. So I mentioned this like product scientist role, and what I was in was more of a temporary contract type of role. So I was applying for different types of more career positions both in government and in industry and for university faculty jobs as well, starting the previous cycle. So really before COVID hit, when I started applying. um, So I was getting, you know, I was pretty far down through the process at various places uh, before everything started to shut down. So things were normal. One faculty job that I was interviewing for, that one got shut down like halfway through the search, unfortunately. Um, and I think some of the industry positions they did end up filling some of those, but surprisingly, so for the I think the university hiring seems to have kind of dropped off a cliff since then, just based on my anecdotal experience and people I've talked to. But like industry hiring seems to be pretty strong for PhDs; it hasn't been affected too much. So anyway, this opportunity for government came up. I guess the I don't know if it was in in spite of COVID or just perhaps the government budgets maybe are a little bit less sensitive to um, you know, economic forces the way you might expect in other areas of the economy. But yeah, I guess for this one position for which I ended up getting hired, we just did the interview process over Zoom and I never got a chance to meet people in person. But otherwise, I think it was fairly smooth and they didn't have to change too much. Like for a government positions, you just apply um, online via this website, USA Jobs, and then they reach out to you um, if you're selected for an interview. Yeah, that's pretty straightforward.
0: So are you going to have to relocate? Uh, Probably not for a little while, right? They're going to let you work remotely?
2: Yeah, yeah. So I asked the director of BOM about that just last week. We had an orientation program, and he said that he doesn't foresee people coming back to the office anytime soon, basically until there's a vaccine that's widely available. He didn't see any reason for it. They've been apparently pretty happy with people's productivity uh, working from home. So um, it's looking like, yeah, spring at the earliest, but from what I've read about the vaccine availability, it might not be till autumn or even winter of 21 before yeah, people are back in the office on a daily basis.
0: Wow. So could you walk us through a typical day on the job there, um, You know, since you started in August, some of the things that you've been doing?
2: Yeah. So uh, onboarding, one thing I learned is onboarding for a government position takes a lot of time. There's you know, a lot of the initial paperwork and then tons of training, of all different kinds, learning how to use their different software systems. So really, it's been see, September, October, it's been more than two months. And you know, the majority of that time has been doing these different onboarding trainings and tasks. So I still haven't completed that, actually. The time I've been able to carve out for other stuff, it's been getting up to speed on the different projects. So it's the Division of Environmental Science that I am working within BOMB. So we have a research budget of something like $30 million a year. We used to fund studies, scientific studies, on the outer continental shelf, or across the continental U.S. and also Alaska and Hawaii, um, for stuff that's relevant to the energy industry and the, you know, permitting of future oil and gas or future wind turbines, we have to do studies to make sure that things are safe. Um, for, so that's what I've been doing now. Is just trying to get up to speed, reading all the proposals, uh, getting in touch with the other people who have been working on these projects, having a little bit of communication with the scientists and the research teams that are carrying out the work. Just trying to get up to speed so I can kind of manage those.
0: And once COVID's over, would you be doing any traveling or field work?
2: I think so, yeah. So Boehm has the headquarters office in um, Sterling, Virginia, right outside DC. And then there are other offices in New Orleans and in Camarillo, California, near Los Angeles, and then also in Alaska. So I think for some of these, like I'm involved in this big project that was uh, recently awarded funding for fiscal 2021 that will be led by the New Orleans office. So I think for that, I'm going to... Definitely be traveling to New Orleans to meet with some of their staff who put in a lot of the legwork for that project, and you know possibly to other offices as well. So it's like, yeah, pretty cool. Possibly there will be some international travel because uh, there's an emphasis now to um, try to work on studies in partnership with other agencies or even with with other countries. Um, so yeah, that's definitely something looking forward to once you know things get back to normal you know, to to um, get out in the field a little bit.
1: Tom, do you feel that some of your day-to-day responsibilities from your contract position at Scripps transferred to your new role as an oceanographer?
2: I think so. I think so, definitely. I mean, so at, at Scripps, I worked, uh, you know, my day-to-day time was consumed by actively doing research. So pulling data from satellite sensors, uh, from, um, you know, in-situ buoys and ships and you know, doing analysis on my computer in, you know, in MATLAB or in Python. Um, Also running simulations with a a numerical model that, um, you know, there's an ocean simulation model, ocean circulation model, or atmospheric circulation model we used to run to compare with observations and, you know, writing manuscripts and communicating with colleagues, going to conferences. All that kind of builds up your knowledge base for how science works. That's certainly at least on background, going to be vital for my new position because I'm going to be overseeing these scientific projects, right? Not, maybe doing a little bit of science on the side, uh, be able to work, I'm hoping, a little bit hands-on, be able to spend a little bit of my time on scientific research, I mean. But the um, majority of my time is going to be overseeing these projects. So it's yeah, basically got a prerequisite, although my uh, current job function is a little bit different than what I was doing before.
1: It certainly helps when you're managing to know the job that the folks you are managing are doing so that you can you know, treat them fairly and make sure that, that they're doing the job as they should and as it, as it is done and as you know from experience. So on a different note, can you tell me uh, from your time at Scripps, was there a particular project, and this could also apply to college and not just Scripps, was there a particular project you worked on that you felt was especially influential or eye-opening to you your interests,
2: or the future of your career? <laughs> uh, I'm mean, not sure I would go that far, but the main project I worked on was, I thought, a really cool project. We were funded by NASA, the NASA Physical Oceanography Program, to utilize their satellite wind observations and observations from their other satellite sensors, um, which measure you know, sea surface temperature or sea level, to uh, study air-sea interaction processes. Um, so specifically, the main thing I worked on was how when you get down to the ocean mesoscale, scale, which is maybe you know, maybe two hundred to three hundred kilometer scale, how do the, the sea surface temperature gradients impact the surface winds? There's basically there's this air-sea coupling at that scale that's still very much an active area of research and how that affects the ocean circulation and more generally how does it affect climate. Also a little bit on regional rainfall, how ocean circulation can affect rainfall at the regional scale was another thing I worked on. So those were Uh, Really cool projects, I thought, just intrinsically and a chance to use like satellite observations and in computer simulations together to further our knowledge of the Earth system. So it was uh, yeah, just on a day to day basis. I I did appreciate every day just being able to work on something, at least to me, that was just such a cool thing to work on.
0: So what do you like most about your job, whether it be Scripps or the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management? Um, Are there certain things that you enjoy more than others?
2: Yeah, I would say it's Scripps so working as a postdoctoral researcher and a project scientist the number one thing I liked was uh, just the terrific like intellectual environment um, just the level of people they have there is really kind of amazing that you get to sit in you know lab meetings with the professors and the other um, young scientists the postdocs and so forth that are there it's just a great environment to be in and the kind of the creative aspect of science where you know you're attacking these problems that you know, there's no answer. It's not like when you're in school and you're going through a textbook and the teacher gives you some homework and the right answer is known and you just have to kind of produce that answer. Like at the graduate level, things are really different where you're trying to answer these, you know, addressing these unanswered problems in science. So, you know, no one really knows what the right techniques are, whether it's what the right observations even that you necessarily need to, um, and the new technologies that you need to observe this phenomenon better to improve our understanding. So, that is really great. Where you know you're, you did have a supervisor, or I had a supervisor, but it wasn't like I was being told in detail what to do every day. There's really a lot of room to kind of explore problems that you think are interesting, but also to choose the approach that that you think is interesting that's going to um, gain some traction. So that is really what I value most. And then the downside, though, for those kind of temporary research positions, is the pay is not that great compared to what I think you know someone at that same age would be able to earn in industry or in other types of more kind of quote-unquote normal jobs. Um, and the uh, job security is also not great because I mentioned the time scale of the research grants that you're working on as a postdoc or a researcher is usually just a couple of years. So you always have to kind of worry about your funding. Um, it's just paying your salary. So that leads to a lot of anxiety among the um, y- young scientists.
0: So for a postdoc, do, do they provide you with housing or do you have to pay rent?
2: Uh, there was, I lived in university housing. So yeah, UC San Diego has pretty good housing for their staff that many postdocs live in. Uh, But it was only it was maybe like 10 or 20% cheaper than the off campus housing. So uh, some people lived off campus as well.
1: Was there any other challenges you faced in your job at Scripps or your job currently that besides the I guess lack of job certainty in the long term? were there any other challenges that you felt you faced that you haven't mentioned yet?
2: uh so yeah I, Again, so back i guess i'll talk briefly about scripts and then try to touch on my current situation so yeah, working in research nothing that is can be a bit of a challenge is the it is can be a bit isolating sometimes that you know you're working on your own project which is part of the appeal for many people as well too that you're you know they're studying this uh this problem that's important to you in solitude um but the downside of that is it can be quite isolating sometimes. And uh, if things don't go well, it can be a little bit tough. Like it requires some mental toughness, I think, to get through the challenges sometimes. So there's this kind of will aspect to it that, you know, certain like mental toughness, I should say, that's required, I think, to, to do well in, in science. That's you would be another challenge, I would say, about yeah, having worked in the university. And I, yeah, I forgot to mention about my current situation. I mean, mostly, like I said, doing like onboarding and training, so I haven't, really been able to get too deep into the projects yet. Uh, But I'm really excited about Boehm's role in helping to provide energy for the country in in coming decades um, in a responsible way by utilizing these considerable resources that we have over the the outer continental shelf. Uh, So far, it's been pretty smooth sailing. I mean, considering that I guess as an aside, you know, trying to onboard into a new job during COVID, it's been very strange to not be able to meet my coworkers in person. That's probably been the toughest part frankly for for my new position is just that the lack of being able to, you know, to go knock on my coworkers' uh cubicle and uh ask for tips or questions or to go for a cup of coffee. And that's something that I guess might be here for a while as well for, so for those of you people young people out there that are looking for jobs and are starting out in new positions. I don't know if people have really figured out how to overcome some of those hurdles yet. um, That's, yeah, I guess been the toughest part.
1: Does your job offer any sort of like social hour on Zoom or some sort of chat-based channel that's more casual, not for work-related matters or any other sort of fun activities like that?
2: Not to my knowledge. I think there are like uh, regular coffee breaks, at least on the schedule. But last time I checked into one of those, you know, there was no one else there so i'm I'm not sure (laughs) how active those are and we do have like group meetings maybe every other week so at least see some other faces sometimes but um yeah just when you're starting out in a new group sometimes to get that feel not just for your work but to get your feel for other people yeah it's nice to have some of that like informal time with people Uh, and yeah to not have that has been uh yeah definitely just a bit of a challenge to get a feel for for the other people
1: Maybe it's gonna have to be your mission, Tom, to bring the coffee break
2: back to life, (laughs) or happy hour. Yeah. Oh, another thing. Great about scripts. I didn't mention they have this awesome happy hour every Friday called TG. So yeah, look, maybe uh, we can get that going for my new position as well. Zoom happy hours.
0: The happy hour, and then after that, go surfing. Sounds like fun. (laughs) Um, So going back to your college days for. our listeners who might be interested in pursuing careers in oceanography what types of courses skills um should they acquire while they're in school
2: Okay, oh, yeah so that's a great question so what I'm about to say this is specific to physical oceanography because uh and I say that because oceanography at the traditional oceanography programs like the one I went to at Hawaii or even like at uh, yeah at most schools still I think at you know Scripps or University of Washington it's split or divided between physical oceanography and chemical oceanography and biological oceanography and the the nature of the work is very different depending on which specialty you're in and the you know the prerequisite coursework and so forth um so you know my specialization is physical oceanography i had a background in applied math which is good for that so yeah i would recommend to young people if you're interested in physical oceanography by that i mean ocean circulation you know different types of ocean waves not just surface waves but also internal waves kind of the role of the ocean in global warming um you know the role that it plays in the climate in terms of how much heat is stored in the ocean how it is uh, coupled to the atmosphere for example that's all sort of considered i think physical oceanography so for that i would recommend you know, taking as much physics um applied math and statistics and also computer programming classes as you can stomach as an undergraduate and also i think what's vital is to you know get some hands-on research experience if you can at your school hopefully you know at your institution there's maybe a physical oceanographer or a climate scientist that you can uh, get some hands-on research experience with or if not there then you can reach out to people at other schools or look for these summer internship opportunities i mentioned this reu program where there are some places like the woods hole oceanographic institution that bring in interns for the summer um, and those kind of hands-on research experiences are really important to see what research is like which i think is intrinsically important for everyone to even if you don't necessarily want to be a researcher at least give it a try to, you know, get, see what it's like to attack these problems where the answer is not known. And you have to, um, you know, try to approach a problem creatively using new tools or things that, you know, haven't been tried before to try to learn something. Um, but also those experiences are important because those, your advisor can then write you a letter of recommendation and letters of recommendation play a really big role in academia in terms of not just graduate admissions, but also as you proceed down the career path for, um, you know, further job opportunities. So that's a, I think, a bit of a difference between like industry maybe and academia. So um, that would be my tips.
0: So for research, um, you know, field research and other projects, do they post them? Like in the department, do professors post these opportunities that students can just apply to?
2: Sometimes, but you can just go knock on doors as well. Uh, yeah, so definitely keep an eye on the like job board. I remember at MIT, there was a, undergraduate research office called the Europe office there. So they used to post uh, funded projects, but you can also go knock on professors doors or say you're taking a class that you think is interesting and you, you know, like have a good vibe with the professor, for example, you can go uh, knock on his or her door and ask if you could get involved. Um, I think most professors would be thrilled to have a, you know, eager undergraduate that they could assign to a project because the way it works. A lot of these faculty have tons of ideas, but maybe, you know they don't have the time to write a grant proposal and hire a graduate student or a postdoc to work on it, but like an undergraduate who can you know get spun up on something like they'd be happy to. Basically, I think there's t- you know no shortage of possible projects for undergraduates to work on for an eager undergrad who's willing to take some initiative. And you can even get funding for that too, even if the professor hasn't got money beforehand. Uh, there's like work study opportunities sometimes. I think or like if check if your school has a UROP office they might have funding um, to pay for undergrads to work on those kind of um, research projects.
1: So Tom, it says on LinkedIn that while you were at Scripps, you utilized deep learning for remote sensing algorithm development. Now, to me, deep learning sounds like pretty in-depth science. And so I'm just wondering, how did you become fluent in that language and that field because certainly, I can imagine if I was in high school and someone said, "I know deep learning," I would have said, "I have no idea how I would ever become fluent or gain entry into that field and that technology." Can you give us some insight?
2: All right. Yes, I would say I'm not I'm not nowhere near fluent in that, but I was utilizing a little bit in my research, um, mostly as a support role with a graduate student. There's this a great graduate student, Will Chapman. I give a shout out to him at Scripps, who's been i think quite innovative in applying deep learning to the study of rainfall forecasts in california but i was working with him a little bit on a this uh, remote sensing problem where something uh, we had uh discovered these errors in the satellite wind fields were around coastal mountains like around hawaii or even in southern california there's areas where the the mountains along the coastline have a pretty strong influence on the coastal winds over the water they create these like lee vortices which are We're not being detected in the satellite WIND product. So our idea was to try to uh, use deep learning to kind of fill in those gaps um, where we could try to train the deep learning algorithm using using output from computer simulations on what we thought the WIND's behavior really was like. And then it could hopefully apply that on what it learned to fill in some of those gaps in the observational data set. Uh, and we would actually end up did ha- having um, some success. It did seem to improve the observations. Um, so we've got a manuscript in preparation uh, detailing that work. But yeah, I guess, again, for the young people out there, this is, uh, you know, this wave is already arriving, this application of um, all these different machine learning techniques, which have been applied more in other fields and a lot in industry, for example, in advertising, in other fields of science. I think it's coming a little bit later to earth science maybe a few years delayed relative to some other fields, but I see, um, you know, people are quite excited about it because we have a lot of these large data sets in Earth science. You know, from, you know, satellite observations, from um, computer simulations. There's tons of data or you know model output out there that can be used to try to train these deep learning algorithms. And one of the strong points, I should say, of um, deep learning is that as you have more and more data available, it's able to to learn, quote unquote, um, more and more. So it's I think a certain types of like prediction problems or for statistical downscaling is what uh, we were doing is trying to fill in these gaps using statistics. Like That's called statistical downscaling. For certain types of problems in earth science, I think there's uh, a lot of excitement for some of these modern machine learning techniques. So yeah, to try to learn, for people out there, uh, there are some good courses online like on Coursera. Andrew Ng from Stanford has a um, great little series of courses you can do on your own. Like I also... Just bought a book by this guy, Engineer Chollet, C-H-O-L-L-E-T. He's, a, he's an engineer at Google who wrote um, a guide to using the Keras module in Python. Um, he's, the I believe, the author of that of that module. So you know if you get his book, it's you know, maybe $30, $40, and you can learn basically how to kind of run those codes that he's written. And then you can apply that to your own, to maybe some problems that you're working on. So from my sense, just working on a little bit for a few months, uh, it's something you have to kind of develop a feel for still. Um, so it requires a lot of uh, kind of tuning different parameters properly to try to get the algorithms to work as well as possible. So certainly an area of a lot of active research, and a lot of excitement, I think is going to grow. I mean, it's already um, grown a lot in the last couple of years. I see uh, a lot of people are working on this. For example, at the uh, AMS annual meeting this upcoming January, I think there's going to be a whole session on uh, machine learning methods in um, earth science or atmospheric science. Um, And yeah, I think this, I see, I foresee a lot of growth as well in the next decade.
0: Well, that's some good tips. Thank you for that. So now that you're established in your career, like for you personally, what helped you the most in your professional journey? Did you have mentors or, you know, did you pursue, you know, this machine learning or um, what helped you the most?
2: Yeah, I think, uh, so I have, first I would want to acknowledge my mentors. Uh, that would be Professor Shang Ping She at Scripps. And also I work with this, uh, there's a researcher there, Bruce Cornell, who's amazing amazing um, scientist and person as well. And then my graduate school advisor, uh, Nicholas Schneider at the University of Hawaii. So for those guys, like academia, it's really like kind of uh, uh, like almost like this apprenticeship model of the way, you know, you read about like the ancient Greeks, I think, learned that way. So it's kind of uh, cool to see that in some ways things haven't changed that much even since ancient times. So you really work a lot one-on-one or maybe one-on-two or three with your advisor a couple of other co-advisors is how things seem to operate at the graduate level. Uh, but also, yeah, I think just trying to, you know, be, keep an open mind towards new things, towards new trends and um, be curious and go to a lot of seminars and, you know, talk to other people, to your friends, uh, about what's going on because like i said yeah in science i mean people don't tell you what's what to do next you know what the next important problem is that's one of the cool things about being in science is that it's kind of up to you to decide uh that's up to the science community to figure out what the important questions are to address and how best to address them so to yeah just kind of uh you know don't get so burrowed into your you know little narrow problem that you're working on that you miss these larger trends which i just mentioned one this rise of um Kind of apply these machine learning techniques and big data techniques to these huge data sets that we have in earth science is one obvious example that's coming down the road.
0: Are there any mistakes you wish you had avoided <laughs> now looking back?
2: Uh, how much time do we have for this uh, pocket? No, uh, <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, you can always second guess, but I guess a couple of things that, um, yeah, maybe just things I didn't know when I was younger that uh, I would maybe like to emphasize to younger people out there would be the importance of, like I mentioned, the recommendation letter. So when you're an undergraduate, if you're, if you can be a little bit strategic, if you think you want to go to graduate school in a certain field, you can either major or double major in that field, or at least take some classes in that department at your school so that you can get recommendation letters from faculty in that field. Cause those, I didn't realize how much weight is placed on those kind of recommendation letters. It's different from like undergraduate admissions that way, because in graduate admissions, The way it works is the admissions committee, if they see, you know, a candidate um, for admission who's got a recommendation letter from someone they know, a personal colleague, that's going to carry huge weight um, more so than, you know, your transcripts alone might or your test scores. So that would be one tip. Also, let's see, I think, yeah, as far as just your career track as well, I mentioned just how tough it is for people who are in these kind of temporary contract research positions like postdocs or product scientists. You don't want to stay too long in those kind of positions. Um, I mean, if you, you know, if you have a ambition to try to make it to a tenure track professor job or a career scientist position at a government lab, that's, you know, fantastic career track. So definitely go for it if you want to, you know, if you want to pursue that path, but there is, you can kind of stay too long. So I think that looking back, I maybe stayed a little, a bit longer than I should have in that kind of role. Cause there's a, uh, I think uh, there's a lot of opportunity out there in the economy doing things besides just being a university researcher. So that's one thing I wanted to mention in this interview. And I think you guys are doing a great job highlighting some of those other kind of career options available to people in the with an earth science background in this podcast series. So you know, I've seen a lot of people who got PhDs in oceanography or in atmospheric science who are, you know, working in industry as a data sciences or as a software engineer. I mean, you can apply kind of the general things that you learn in Science to other career paths, which are also offer a lot to young people. I think so. Don't have that like tunnel vision where you kind of miss the big picture as well. It's important to you know keep in touch with some of your friends from undergrad who maybe studied other things and just have try to keep some sense of what else is going on out there in the economy because there's a lot of opportunities for people to do all kinds of stuff. You know, I have friends that got a PhD in oceanography and are you know working in finance as well. There's you know many things working in. Um, in government, uh, helping to advise our government on having policy that, you know, intelligent policy that's related to the environment. So yeah, just, yeah, a lot of great um, things you can do that utilize your general knowledge or even your earth science knowledge where you're not just working as a researcher in a university or a lab. Those would be some of my tips.
1: Tom, we're so grateful for everything you've told us about career tracks in general and oceanography as a specific career, not to mention everything else about mathematics and your other interests. However, before you go, we always ask our guests in general and you specifically one last fun question, um, at the end of our show. So I know you received your master's and your PhD at the university of Hawaii in Honolulu. And when I think of Hawaii, I think of its natural wonders. Uh, From volcanoes to massive waves and of course the crystal blue water that of course you must be familiar with given your field and since I've learned you're a surfer as well, so is there a particular part of Hawaii that you miss the most now that you've left the state?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So I talk about that with my wife all the time because we met in Hawaii. Actually, she also um, was in graduate school there, and we still have some friends out there. So think about it all the time we we're hoping to even visit this year, but with COVID, that hasn't been possible. So yeah, I mean, there are many things. I love around Oahu. I loved uh, the windward side up there around like Kailua Beach. Also down in Makapuu was was a great place. We're just to go bodyboarding down there sometimes with friends. Um, you know, there are lots of great hiking up all the ridges. Uh, based on each mountain range there, there's trails you can hike up, which are fantastic, great food, the fresh fish and poke, um, and just the kind of warm uh, people that you have there as well. So, yeah, many things kind of miss Hawaii all the time.
0: I've never been, and it certainly makes me want to go. <laughs> Hopefully someday after COVID, I will make it to Hawaii.
2: <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. So, boom. actually, one thing that we're working on is potential future renewable wind projects out in Hawaii. So I already told my boss that I want to work on that project. <laughs> thanks so
1: much for joining us, Tom, and sharing your work experiences with us. All right. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks, Rex.
0: Well, that's our show for today. Please join us next time. Rain or shine.
1: Clear skies ahead. Conversations about careers in meteorology and beyond is a podcast by the American Meteorological Society. Our show is produced by Brandon Kroos and edited by Peter Trebke. Our theme music is composed and performed by Steve Savoy, and the show is hosted by Rex Horner and Kelly Savoy. You can learn more about the show online at www.ametsoc.org clearskies clear skies and can contact us at skypodcast at ametsoc.org if you have any feedback or if you would like to become a future guest.